0: Today's businesses are on a vigilant watch for threats. In an ongoing cyber war, it's time to get real-world solutions to protect and secure your valuable business information anytime, anywhere. Welcome to Cyber Security America with Josh Nicholson. You're about to gain special access into a world of restricted information and a backstage pass to the inner sanctum of cybersecurity operations. Here's your host, Joshua Nicholson.
1: Now, don't forget to hit comment, share, and turn on those notifications so you don't miss an exciting episode. Your lack of planning does not constitute an emergency on my part. Boy, if I have to live that one. Uh, welcome to Cybersecurity America. This is Joshua Nicholson, it's your host again. Today's episode is going to be on threat intelligence, what the attackers are doing, where the industry is moving, and what you can expect, how artificial intelligence and other machine learning technologies can help and develop your program and move forward. Before this episode, we're going to have our threat intelligence brief from Deep Seas with Aaron Beerlin. Aaron?
2: Thank you, Josh. One report that I would focus on that's come across the Deep Sea CTI desk this week is the reemergence of Monty Ransomware. After about a two-month hiatus, we saw Monty Ransomware back with some activity, specifically with a new implant that appears to be focused on Linux servers as opposed to their normal Windows-based servers. Monty is of interest to us because a lot of their code similarity showed that they were an off-branch or a group that was able to get a hold of Conti ransomware, hence the slight change to the name. And Conti ransomware was obviously a very prolific ransomware actor that ended up having leaks that came out during the initial Russia and Ukraine conflict. And that group ended up dissolving. But some of that code obviously was still seen out in the wild. And we did see a lot of similarities with this Monty threat group. So we have to assume that they're either affiliated actors that were Conti in the past or a new group that was able to get a hold of a lot of that Conti code. With this new implant that targets Linux though, there is far less code uh, similarities to original Conti uh, code lines that we've seen before. And now, With it targeting Linux systems, we're seeing a bit of an advancement in their TTPs and obviously in the attack surface that they're focusing on. Specifically in some of the code lines that were reviewed, you can see commands that are known to be specifically for targeting VMware ESXi servers. That doesn't necessarily mean that Monty's only interested in targeting VMware ESXi servers or that they have any particular knowledge Based on VMware ESXi servers, it's more likely that because of a lot of the recent vulnerabilities that we saw specifically from VMware servers, this would be a natural progression that we would see from these types of threat actors. We know that there's approximately a 48-hour time window. From when a threat actor sees a publicly available vulnerability until there's a proof of concept developed and an exploit uh, that we start seeing moving in the wild. This is likely the path that they're taking and there's no evidence that would suggest that Monty ransomware actors uh, have any particular knowledge on VMware ESXi servers, but that's something to keep an eye out for. And obviously, the prevalence of those across the landscape is something that we should be slightly cautious of in the event uh, that they are able to find a zero-day vulnerability. But as I said before, there's no evidence of that at this time. Going forward on this, though, we will likely see more Linux targeting when we look at ransomware operators, and we will likely also see a lot more of these server-based vulnerabilities being leveraged by those operators in hope that organizations are more focused on taking care of their endpoints rather than their servers, or in hope of finding some sort of misconfiguration, especially with servers that uh, participate within cloud activity. Other than that, uh, we're still obviously monitoring a lot of the Chinese threat activity that I brought up last week and seeing where that might go and continually updating our uh, outlook and our strategic view of what we think all of these nation-state threat actors may do as the world around us continues to change and as the threats around us continue to advance. If there are ever any questions, you can always contact us, cti at deepseas.com. Back to you, Josh.
1: A real special guest on the phone today, we have Brian Moore. Now, Brian is the is the co-founder of RecFest, a program management platform designed specifically for intelligence and investigation teams. Now, Brian has been in the intelligence and security space for over two decades. He served in the United States Marine Corps for over 15 years, where he spent most of his time in counterintelligence, human intelligence field. Following his career in the Marines, Brian's transition to threat intelligence team at a large financial services company, we recognized the need for and designed and implemented threat intelligence workflows to improve communications between the intelligence team and other information security teams. Now, Brian left the customer side of the industry to pursue an an opportunity uh, and an intelligence provider. As a director of their professional services offering, Brian created and delivered workshops for customers to assist them in better understanding and utilizing the information provided by the vendor. It is by working on both sides of the threat intelligence relationship that Brian recognized a need for what RecFast has to offer. Brian has a master's of science in cybersecurity and an MBA, and even has an associate of arts in Chinese Mandarin. More importantly, Brian is a dad, a husband, and a dog owner. I really got to know what kind of dog too, because I'm a dog lover. Welcome Mm -hmm. to the show, Brian. How are you doing today?
3: I'm doing well, sir. Thanks for having me on.
1: That is great. Now, what kind of dog is it?
3: So I got two. I got a Yorkie, very fierce at eight years old. And then I have a Morkie, half Maltese, half Yorkie. And he is three and a perpetual puppy. Not the big dogs, but two of them combined definitely make up for that.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah I can imagine. I had a little mutt and, and that's one of my that was my heart for the longest time. We called them tiptoes. That's awesome. Brian, what's new with you? Last time I talked to you, you were at that big financial institution. You went out on your own and and started your own company. You saw a real need out there. What's been going on with you?
3: I guess the biggest news is we survived Black Hat. This is the first year that we were uh, sponsoring an event at that level. So it was fun to be in the mix with all the other vendors to see what's going on, see who's doing what, but also just meet a lot of people And of course, be able to talk about what it is we do and show how far we've come from when we started about five years ago. We're really excited about the latest release of our platform. Much needed change to user experience and interface. When you have a guy used to consult doing coal mines and a marine, we weren't so big on the design thing. And so it's just really exciting to have that user interface catch up to what the industry expects these days. So yeah, big stuff for us.
1: And I imagine five years in that startup and, and coming from your background. So what do you see really is the trends in the industry? I know you're building solutions because you saw a real need in the market and, and a real need in the threat intelligence space. But what are you seeing from a threat landscape that kind of morphs into a the market space? And, and how do I address threat intelligence in my environment?
3: So it's been an interesting journey. 2015 is really when the threat intelligence market came to be or the industry came to be in, in its own right. Everybody was talking about the need for threat intel at RSA. It was a great buzzword. Everybody was using all the right terminology and turned it into kind of a, a James Bond, Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne type of thing, the three JVs. And like, how do we get actionable intelligence and filing int reps and all that good stuff. But what was true then is still somewhat true now is we were really good at pulling over all the jargon, but none of the process, right? The intelligence community is not about excitement and action and surprises, right They don't like to be surprised and so they're very methodical about what they do and they do it across the board Intel is collected and produced the same way whether it's at the FBI, NSA different terminology mm-hmm. but the process is the same. And so now I'm seeing in the industry it's a business right and they're they support businesses and I need to they can't just run off of cool market anymore they actually have to show value to the business so I see a lot more accountability. And I see a lot more consolidation in the field of smaller players who just can't demonstrate that value to their organization, both internal teams and then also vendor spend, especially with the new SEC filings where, you know, in the 8K, companies have to start identifying cyber events as part of their corporate filings. I have a feeling that you're going to see cybersecurity pulled up and there's going to be a lot more accountability. You, obviously, you were there. Uh, I was watching or listening to your podcast on the 8th with uh, Josh and is it Tim, Tom, basically mm-hmm. the journey of the CISO. And I see that elevate evolution of the CISO moving from just a cybersecurity professional to an actual business professional. I think they're going to need some sort of intelligence support. And I think threat intelligence, if they're smart, has the opportunity to pivot away from the SOC and become more of a, a business enablement tool.
1: Yeah, that's where we, we have the same uh, vision. I think what happens is when you do uh, intelligence in the military and all, and you have that mindset and you're used to how collection goes and how do you enrich. And when you have that, you can see real needs were I think that is more a business enablement, like you're saying, more of a business enablement. Before it used to be like IOCs and URLs and IP addresses right. and all you cared about, what was your tip? And how did I take my tip and push my IOCs to the desktop? And it was all just about IOCs. And then yep. even our search and our hunt, enterprise search. And then when you start doing hunts, is was all IOC based. We'd have some big financial client that at one of the FSI sacks or whatever would release some some IOCs out and we would have to go search for them. And it just going from those rudimentary levels to where it needs to be. Where do you see is a vision of where this going? Where's threat intelligence going in the market? I
3: think, yeah, I, I think there's going to be a, a pivot, right? And with artificial intelligence and ML coming online, and the speed at which these tools are learning and adapting and dealing with problems, I don't see there. There's not going to be a need for a human analyst at the SOC level who's just whose job is to push IOCs and make sure patches are happening. But if intelligence really leans into decision support and the players in the space who have these established platforms are able to more integrate with the other areas of the business, uh, I definitely see there's an opportunity for threat intelligence to grow up a little bit and become more of a business enablement tool. Uh, My dream, of course, would be that all private sector commercial intelligence kind of bands together, forms some standards and becomes that like 19th agency of the greater intelligence community that our nation has. But how do you do that? You have to get out. You have to think outside of the sock, right? You have to get out of there and say, what am I doing on a day to day basis that actually aligns to the business needs? Mm -hmm. And then how do I show that? And how do I have and how do I show that I have an understanding of business? And then when I'm answering or answering RFIs or responding and, or helping CISOs make decisions on where to spend the budget, how do I show that I'm like impacting the bottom line? I think if Threat Intel as a whole can make that shift, then it'll succeed. If not, I think it'll just be absorbed by artificial intelligence tools. And that's unfortunate because there's a real need there. Um business intelligence has been around for 30, 40 years as a very strong discipline. They have really sexy, cool technology and tools. You still need a business analyst to understand the business, to ask the right questions and use those tools to enable their answers. We have the same opportunity in threat intelligence, but we're not paying attention. There's other disciplines like business intelligence, competitive intelligence that have been doing this for a long time. It's the same stuff, just different questions. One example is I have a workshop that I teach. Basically, how does the intel team read a corporation's 10k statement of what the business has announced is in their risk and how do they filter that down and can they align stakeholder requirements to those business concerns and then how do they put that in their workflow it's been there's more interest there i've read the the book it's a great book by matthew sharp and uh Kyri- Kyriakos Lambros. lambrose it's called the ciso evolution and it's basically mm. What you guys were just talking about is like the CISO becoming more mindful of what the board cares about, what the business cares about. It's not just a cybersecurity position. I think Intel yeah. has that same need,
1: right? What's interesting about both those guys is I came up through consulting with them and Ernst and Young, and and it was a great it was a great experience. But when we talk about knowing the businesses, because we actually got thrusted into that, we in mm-hmm. the beginning it was here's a pen test. Don't you know security is important? But we kept having in financial institutions, regulations and risk assessments and things needed to be plugged in and it needed to be quantified. And you learned really quick that you had to speak the language of risk management and controls. And these bigger organizations like Wells Fargo, I was part of the group risk officer function. So we had a group risk officer and she was responsible for all risk management functions. It wasn't just cybersecurity, but loss mitigation, a lot of different angles. And you quickly noticed how cybersecurity my cyber skills were fine to help out to make some of the determinations on the risk management that we did, but a lot of it was also the business impact. It was really hard. You had to get on with the business in, uh, owners and you go, okay, so if that data center goes offline, what happens here? And just figuring that out was, I think, the most difficult in the bigger organizations, right?
3: Yeah, and you guys highlighted it, but it's hard. It's not impossible. You can quantify risk and you can quantify risk in terms of your business. But it takes effort. It's not something, and this is the myth of technology is that there's going to be this special black box that you can buy that's going to do it for you and solve all your problems. The fundamentals of understanding your business of what goes in and what goes out and who is responsible for what, that is hard. It's difficult. It is very difficult to get to, but it's important if you really want to get there. I think the financial services as an industry will have a better chance of making that tradition transition of threat intelligence becoming more business of intelligence and cybersecurity, making that transition because they've been working on the risk side of the house and quantifying it and solving some of those bigger issues. I think health sector will have to catch up quickly on their own, but at least they'll have another industry to look at to say, this is how they do it. And so I, I do hope there's A little bit more information sharing between the ISACs, between definitely the FSISAC and health ISAC of not just like sharing IOCs, but like, how are you doing this? What is the context around that IOC and what is the ultimate decision that you were trying to make at the end of the day and share some of that information as well?
1: I don't know how much you would get from them. They would understand what exactly they we're trying to get at the end of the day. I think sometimes it's they're trying to check a box It says you're right. supposed to have this. I a lot of times when we try to do these strategic intel assessments for our customers, they don't realize how strategic it really is of, of what parts of your business, where do you operate, how do you sit in that landscape, and some of the real benefits to it.
3: And you guys mentioned cyber insurance, and I've been, I tell people a lot like the same list that the underwriter has been looking at to judge your security posture and whether or not they're going to insure you or pay out at the time comes. That's the same list that CISO should care about. We should marry those together. And then it's one thing to check the box in 2022 to fill that out. You got your policy, great. But what about changes of state? Like, how do you know? if you're still, your boxes are still checked and then how they're checked and then who's responsible for that and has that changed. And so that's difficult to build up some sort of internal awareness that'll say, hey, this person moved jobs, which means that they are no longer responsible for this, which means your playbook is out of date. You need to update that. Um, That's a neat trick. And that is not something that is just going to be magically done by a security tool or any tool for that matter. And you still have to fill it out. So it'll be interesting to see When cybersecurity fully realizes that they're part of the business, they're not a organization that gets to say no, and they just need to change their paradigm of, we're not trying to make everything as safe as possible. It's no, we're trying to keep you secure and profitable in an unsecured world. It's a different mindset and a lot of information security, just information technology individuals don't think like that. And vice versa, we have sides of the business that don't even think at all about the computer that they're using to do their job. And I think that CISO has that opportunity to be that bridge and should be that bridge. And I think the intelligence function, I think they need to learn to rely on that team to help them make those decisions.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And so tell me, RecFest. Fast, wreck fast. Right um, fast. It's hard to say that really fast. Yeah, wreck <laughs> fast.
3: Rhymes with breakfast is my favorite meal of the day. And so I have a lot of fun with the marketing on that. But yeah, so
1: wreck fast. Okay. And so, what uh, if what problem are you really solving with that? If I had a need in what area I should look for that platform? So, the problem that you're solving with it, what, so, how exactly does your solution so do that?
3: Initially, out the gates, it was a project management tools specifically designed for a threat intelligence team. But in the use of discussing, talking to people, it's really just any investigative team um, who's been tasked to do something. But what we do at its core is you identify your stakeholder. Who is the decision maker that you're going to support? Is it CISO? Is it the IR team? Um, Is it ultimately the board who's asking questions? And then based on that, what are their requirements? What is it? what are the bits of information they actually need to know in order to make those decisions? And then we tie that to, where are all your resources, your tools, the people, the vendors, anything that you can think of to use to answer those requirements, We tie those together. And then we tie it back to workflow. Um, We're a standalone ticketing system because it's a case management tool, but we also know that there are some players in this space uh, that once they're in, they're never going to get out. So we integrate. We've never meant to be like the, the, the one platform to rule them all but we're trying to bring all these different resources together in one place to be like a core system of knowledge when an intel team goes gets a request from the cso it's about ransomware it's about a zero day and they ask something like did you see this or in other words is this going to be a problem for our company what is the risk they know now that okay if it's about zero days and ransomware here's all the sources information here's all the people that we need to talk to in order to get a good picture internally and externally in order to, to respond to the CISO. Uh, we need to talk to VOL management. We need to talk to everybody who's involved in a ransomware issue so we can respond as a unified voice for the CISO and the CISO can make a decision accordingly. Um, that basic level of project management, I rarely see, especially I, I've seen it a few times in the financial sector and very few places elsewhere. That's whether it's hunting, you got to have a, you're hunting for something for a reason. And you mm. got to show value at the end of the day In the Intel world, if nothing happens, how do you take credit for that? And then if something does happen, how do you show that it wasn't your fault that you've been working this whole time? Um, but, yeah,
1: so. I'm curious, how, how do you really take the threat intelligence and map that directly into hunt plans? You would have malicious activity that a threat actor has a TTPs. So you have some of that kind of information. Does that make sense? How would you take that initially and go, okay, these are the artifacts that you, that's what's the next level of, these are the artifacts of that malware. And if you were to hunt for this in your environment, this is how I would would do my hunt plan. I mean, right.
3: So, and that's a great example. So you have some sort of external information that there's a threat actor doing XYZ in networks, right? But that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? There's other information there that you would want to trigger off of it's hunting in a very similar network to ours. It is hunting. It is those threat actors are operating in the same industry, same size of order. This is what they're looking for. And so I've always told people that the APTs are going to use whatever tactics are going to work in your environment. Just because they use these tactics and this mm-hmm. customer doesn't mean it's going to be the same. So you often want to look for what they were looking for. So what the Threat Intel team can help is... Talk about motive, intent, capability, and that helps the threat hunter just not look so myopically at one TTP as to look at the campaign in general. It's the same as uh, red teaming. If the red team is trying to build a campaign that mimics real world things, they take all those TTDs that do work, see if they work in this environment. But really the goal is to where are they trying to achieve and where are they going? That's where Intel can help support those exercises. But at the end of the day, an investigative team is still an investigative team. Even the Intel team, they see something come in their feeds of saying, oh, this threat actor, they're going to go looking through everything, but you have to have something there that my cdlp the Hunt team, the Red team, they're looking for these specific things and that's what I'm going to look for. I now have a reason for giving you this report. 90% of what's out there, I'm still getting emails from vendors on their mailing list of just rundown of every cyber event that they could think of that happened in that week. So what? What do I care? What is me as a recipient? And they're going to send it to everybody on their list. That's not intelligence. That's just spreading information intelligence is information in context, and you're actually going to make a decision based off of that. The hunt team is going to say, Hey, now we're specifically looking for something Hey, we found it. So what are the decisions? Do you deny it, disrupt it, deceive But there's actually data points. You can make those courses of action selection for the decision maker. It's, it's just a mindset again of when I go out to start my work, who's asking for it and why And then am I hunting just because it's cool or is there a real business need that could be impacted if I find something or not? So there's just a lot to hunt for. So wouldn't you want a shortened list of things to look for? And honestly, Intel should not be separate than hunt, should not be separate than red team. They should always be working together um, and sharing information and requirements and their products and why they're doing what they're doing Uh, too many times. This is what I'm hoping will also change in the industry. Too many times Intel is considered like this separate part of the information security role. Like here's your team over here, and then you have Hunt team over here, and then you have the SOC and IR.
1: Right.
3: No, it's Intel should be that glue between all the different teams speaking to the CISO.
1: That's true. Yeah. And it's usually not. It's some siloed function and seeing a reporting almost like it's a news agency that just having no. some cool stories. And... Right. And
3: then what am I supposed to do with like I, I Thank you. And how do you get past that? And like every team's, oh, we always, we got to stay ahead of the news cycle and we respond to all this. True. You do, sadly, but you can also put it into context Like, yeah, this is bad, but you should see this. Use it as your leader into the conversation with your stakeholders and help guide them to what is important. But it's in the context of your your own business. This impacts the bottom line. This does not. That will make a huge difference with your stakeholders.
1: Yeah, I think so. And uh, I think just a regular flow of information really helps just the, that frequency of update with them that you're there in these strategic meetings. I think trying to infuse it in into these operational meetings. I, I noticed management sometimes that our customer sites will have these big meetings, not include us, but we're part mm. of it and we would have to adapt to be part of that program. Yet we're not part of it because you're considered a, a vendor and so forth. Yeah.
3: yeah, and it's not even a... it's 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 not just intelligence, but it's cybersecurity in general. Why are we not invited to the table when products are being planned? Do we know when new products are going to be launching? Because that's going to change our threat environment. That's going to change the network that we are securing.
1: I used to ask that stuff too. And like at Whitney Bank, I wanted to know when we were going to roll out. The problem is that you just don't have time to sit in full time to understand all the products that the business is pushing out. I think it's, you have to have some architectural standards and you would do some things that say, is this is non-standard and you have a governance program and any non-standard does, it doesn't meet the standard has to be adjudicated through yeah. the IT and security departments, whatever. But rarely, it's almost like you're being told after the fact that something.
3: Oh, you almost know, all the time. You're of hiring, way,
1: we're, we're merging with this company and this platform's doing X and y'all need to go figure it out. Um, and in
3: some cases, the mechanisms exist, right? To know that. And somebody knows, right? Like- why wouldn't you want to tie your business intelligence team to your threat intelligence team? Why wouldn't you want to build those lines of communication to know that if new product is is being launched, please let Josh know in the SOC so he can plan accordingly? It's yes, there's too much going on, but to be there all the time, but there it is worth the effort start linking the teams together that do this function. I know some big organizations, they have a risk Intel team, and then they have a physical security team that does intelligence and they have a business intelligence all about answering really tough questions for the business and strategically where they're going to go, but none of those teams talk. Um, And I think that's a shame because in many cases, like most organizations like 90% of what they need to know to have a really effective Intel program already exists in the organization. It's just a matter of Having somebody bringing that together, even if you have a really robust knowledge management organization, you're halfway there because what have they been doing? They've been doing trying to collect everything across the organization of who knows what. It's just not in real time yet. But if you focus some effort there and truly built an organizational intelligence function, I know as a true star, And before they were absorbed into the mothership of Splunk, I know their CEO used to push for a a, chief intelligence officer for organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that ever will take off, but that should be a function of some sort. And I think there needs to be at least a centralized intelligence organization inside larger corporations, especially because they have all these teams that they're collecting all this information. They're just not sharing Mm -hmm. it.
1: I think that's a great example of something that would be interesting. If you did have a chief intelligence officer and, and it was business related it was also a disaster recovery i mean it was, you know and covered a dr contingencies and uh, i think that would be a very interesting for instance, understanding what branches, where we had banks with hundreds of branches all over right. the the South, which ones are in high crime area? Should the camera systems have better camera systems and stronger doors? You can imagine high threat environments and breaking it down, say high threat environments have to have these types of physical controls that are on the building right. versus these. How do you really know it's a high threat environment and what my risk is if... You have to do some yeah. risk assessment and pull some data, and it's not just crime statistics in that area. So there, there's
3: a Absolutely. whole plan. There's a lot of opportunities there, and you no, know, the guy sitting in the SOC, who's the cyber threat intel guy can't answer those questions. But I bet you somebody in the physical security place is probably already worried about problems like that and doing stuff like that. How do we get how do we get them together? And how does now the the CISO, the CIO, the CSO, chief security officer filter through all that and actually see how it's all related? It yeah. exists. How do we
1: connect it? Yeah, how do you connect it? And and you notice what I think that you'll see a lot of organizations will say we just need to learn to communicate better. Well, <laughs> yeah. so actually, it's not the communications. As if everyone's entire brain, collective brain, was just shared together, and nothing would be a problem. But when they say we have to communicate better, I, I think what happens is they assume some of these business intelligence things are just happening in the background, like just people do it on the sidelines or something, right. and they really don't have an intelligence program. Right. And, but they expect, hey, if something bad is coming up, just let me know. And it's just that's not how it works.
3: No. And I, this is a common complaint of a lot of Intel teams that have very capable people come from the military, come from the intelligence community, some are homegrown and just have like amazing common sense or intelligence sense, I should say. And they go to their stakeholders and say, okay, we're all about requirements. We're all about satisfying customers' needs. What is it you want to know? And the stakeholder just says, just tell me all about the threats in my environment. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, all right, let's go download the internet first, and then we'll figure out what do we need that's important. No, the idea is understanding what the stakeholder is actually trying to do and accomplish. And I think there's a misunderstanding on both sides. Like they're both willing to communicate, but they don't understand each other's capabilities or what they're actually working on. And this kind of comes from that siloed behavior. Information security is in that dark room and Mm. hisses at anybody who walks by and gets mad if like they're interrupted. Like it's a culture that, that we have to change.
1: So where do you think someone wants to new to get into the threat intelligence field? Where would I start off? Obviously, you guys got trained, you were in the Marine Corps, got a lot of uh, other friends who were NSA and so forth. But what if you're just right out of college? How do I get into threat intelligence? Where do you think some free resources? Where would a guy get into it? Because to me, if, if when I looked at it, I'm a trained incident responder. But when it comes to actually understanding the collection and curation and all that of threat intelligence and making it actionable, it's not something I spent a ton of my time on i've always been the benefit of someone else's work
3: yeah it's it, I,
1: I don't want to throw out names and but
3: you can go for certifications there are a few out there yes you can get your giant cti i just took the test and passed mine thankfully i passed it was a tough class so the um, sans intel course yeah and it was good but it was also it was review you can look into Sergio's, I can't pronounce his name, Calta Jerome, author of the Threat Intelligence Academy. He has his own company now. He's one of the people who wrote the Diamond Model. There are resources out there. You don't necessarily have to get certified, but it helps. And at least doing something basic, like going through a couple of his basic courses, just to get an idea of what is intelligence. But honestly, I, for me personally, I think... If you spent some time understanding how business intelligence works and how to be a business analyst, if if you want to look at competitive intelligence, mm. if you truly want to go the analyst route, there's a lot of resources there already that aren't necessarily flavored, but it, the process is the same. Well, if you want to get into threat intelligence and you want to pivot and live in the world of Multigo and IOCs and this and that, I'm sure there's courses available, but that's to me, that's not necessarily where threat intelligence is going.
1: So I'm a bit biased. Hmm. I, I started looking into, I, I'll tell you one thing, I got my bachelor's degree from Tulane computer information systems, minor in telecommunications. And that was great because it gave me the technical background of what I needed. That next level. When I looked from an education, I did it. I started an MBA program in new Orleans when I was there. I only I had got two classes done before I had to move to Charlotte, North Carolina and disconnect. And I never went back and finished the MBA. I tried, but I'm, when you're flying all around the world consulting, yeah. it's really hard to... A little
3: bit, a little difficult.
1: And online really just took off because of the pandemic. Before, you, they really didn't have too many good MBA programs that were online. And But I was thinking the intelligence, they have a degree programs like from the Citadel as like a master's in intelligence or ah. the John Hopkins has got a program and a master's of science in intelligence analysis. And it wasn't necessarily because I wanted to go into the intelligence field, like I wanted a career change in many ways, but it was more of, I thought that degree and those skill sets would make me almost a super researcher. Like right. that's part of it would make you really understand how to collect data and information and make actionable decisions and maybe get into business intelligence one time where you're yeah. providing that service. I don't know. What are your thoughts on those kind of masters? Yeah, I,
3: I'm a huge fan of Mercyhurst. They have a great Intel Pure intelligence training as well as competitive intelligence. If you're looking to go to start in college for something in that field, and I know a lot of graduates end up going on to defense intelligence agency and we go into the government. Um, so there are great like Johns Hopkins, another great one, George Washington, obviously anything in the beltway probably has a pretty good intelligence program. It's a great understanding, right? The problem is when you get to the corporate world, as we talked about, Threat Intel has been shoved into kind of a sock role and it's all about pushing IOCs. And I'm hesitant to say that's the perfect way to do it because you might get really frustrated when you get into the corporate world and see that people aren't doing Intel the right way. That certainly drove me crazy and started me on my path. I also chose not to get my CISSP. I got my MBA instead for the very reason is I already knew how to speak geek to other geeks. I needed to learn how to speak. To leadership and the business. And that's where I found that to be invaluable. And I will tell you that MBA only teaches you so much. Try starting a company during a pandemic in a global recession, and that will teach you a lot more about <laughs> running a business than your MBA ever will. Um,
1: it, will qu- it will question your determination.
3: Yeah, well, that that is also true. Commitment check. If you want to get it in the intelligence space, definitely look at getting certified, taking courses, even evening courses, but just un- even understanding now it's the, days of data, right? How do you do do full data analysis? Because business intelligence, what have they been doing? They've been taking disparate amounts of very crazy data sets, bringing them together, normalizing it, and asking questions in order to answer questions for business owner to take their business to the next level. Why is threat intelligence any different? You're taking huge amounts of data from all over the organization, and you're trying to figure out questions about where are we going with our cybersecurity posture? Are we spending our money in the right places? what are we doing right today? Are we doing the right things today? And will we be doing the right things tomorrow? And how do I answer those questions? Mm -hmm. To me, threat intelligence is still a little behind the curve. If you get somebody who's coming, if I'm hiring on my Intel team, I'm gonna wanna hire somebody who can do big data analytics. I'm gonna hire a business analyst because they're going to help me, A, identify data sets that can help me communicate to leadership of what we're doing in the threat intel space. I don't think there's any one path into intel. Like You can come out of the SOC without any intel background because you just know what works and what's not working, and then how do we get to the next level? If you're the type of person who's you're doing incident response, you're a tier one, tier two analyst, or even tier three, and you're constantly seeing like an exploit kit getting through and you want to wonder why, and then what are they targeting? And yes, I know what system IP-wise or MAC address that's going after, but what's that doing in the business? Is there a business reason that the threat actor is going after that? And if you want to start looking into those questions, now you're doing Intel, right? Cause you're trying to figure out a, a campaign that you can later say, hey, we might want to put extra alerting on this group of individuals because they're being targeted. Yeah. That's a decision support, right? So I think a lot of it is just mindset. Are you into critical thinking? Are you into solving larger problems? Are you looking at connecting the dots? These are all Intelli stuff that you can do, but you don't necessarily have to have a background in intelligence.
1: I'll tell you one of the most fascinating things I saw Intel products that we produced when I was at Booz Allen. And we had a commercial client that was a news agency. And they had reporters in the field in Ukraine. And they were going from town to town and they needed to know what roads were passable, where were rebel forces at, what's safe, what's mined, what's not, and their lives were on the line. And yeah. I saw some of the finished products from that and how it was collected and it was just phenomenal to work. That Booz Allen yeah. Hamilton can mm-hmm. do and just saw the benefit real world. Those reporters knew where to go. They knew what areas were hostile, what, which weren't, Who with the trust. There was also insignia of rebel factions that were in there. It was just interesting how uh, detailed it was.
3: Yeah, and that's, but, and that's when intelligence is exciting, and that's when you can really tie it. When it's life or death, it's very freaking cool. I spent time on the ground working and collecting information from human sources. And I got to go join my friends with Beards and Black Helicopters and go knocking, go trick-or-treating at two in the morning. Very cool stuff. In the cyber world, it's here's a list of IOCs, go. It's not as exciting, but there's mm. once you tie it to, yeah, we're profitable because of this. What I'm doing helped us not have layoffs next next quarter because we're profitable and we exceeded expectations. I had a role in that. That can go a long way. And I think it's uh, incumbent upon cybersecurity leadership to remind their participants and their employees that they are a part of the business and what they do matters. Because as you and I both know, this industry can chew people up. It is depressing because it is just nonstop. It's never done. And you're it's never-, never
1: done. And they, and when you're doing 12 hour days in some cases, and they go, you, you still, you don't have your strategy. Why not? It was just, yeah. this and, and,
3: and you're still taking hits. Like even no matter what you do, you're still taking hits, but if you can start tying your activities to say, Hey, you know what? Yeah. We had some bad shit happen. We were able to respond and our company still hit the numbers because of what we did. That goes a long way. And I don't think we do a good enough job taking care of our cybersecurity folk and making them feel part of the greater business team.
1: No. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And it's, it's going to be a challenge all the time. I think threat intelligence, most areas are are a challenge. Sometimes I understand, hey, do we really need this? How much do we're spending here? What's the benefit? Yeah. What's the ROI? Yeah. And I think sometimes threat intelligence is hard to determine an ROI unless you have some big event that you can actually <laughs> go, okay, yeah. see that thing really would have blown up. I, I'll tell you the one I had, which was the most beneficial example I have of threat intelligence, the cyber fusion center for a big biopharmaceutical company, right? Running the cyber fusion center, had a number of things that were going on. But one thing we would do, and in the morning we'd get a threat intelligence brief by Mm -hmm. by our on-site consultant team that we had deployed. And that threat and tell report one time, it stated that ransomware actors were uh, producing denial of service attacks on customers that didn't pay the ransom and that you can be prepared for that kind of shift in tactic where it's, I'm going to, I'm going to denial of service to you. I'm going to make it really painful to you pay and to you to do yeah. that. I was briefing the chief information security officer of that company on it. And and she turned and she said, I, I'm just curious here, but any threat intelligence you think is relevant right now, given the situation? I said, we are seeing ransomware actors shift and their denial of services are coming. I'm, I'm just curious, do, do how is your denial of service capabilities? And she says, you know what? I don't know. There was a project that was on the books. I don't know where it actually went. I'm going to go find out. And she went and found out. And then the next month or the next time we met with her, we went over the program again. She goes, you know what? I found out it was a project that was shelved and we reinitiated it. So she reinitiated the project. They got the scrubbers in place. They had the physical hardware shipped to the data centers. And this is a massive pharmaceutical. So it's a lot of infrastructure. It took about three months really to get all the infrastructure out there. The, I think the boxes were in place for two days and they got hit by a massive denial of service and exactly what happened. We got a note on something. We didn't even have a ransomware. It was just like a note. But yeah, it was a massive denial of service and the service wasn't ready, wasn't in production, but had to be thrown into production to try and mitigate it. But if and it we it took about three hours to mitigate this flood and get systems back up and running for the scrubbers to, to kick in. Because what happens is a lot of these scrubbers, they initiate a GRE tunnel to a data center. So mm-hmm. they take that traffic and then they pump it over this GRE tunnel over to their scrubbers and then they scrub the data. So they're adding another hop in there yeah. and using the GRE because it's less chance of fragmentation when you do that. There was so much traffic that was coming that the boxes couldn't establish the GRE tunnels in the first place because it was mm-hmm. so much traffic that was flowing, nothing can get out. Wow. So it was really interesting to have a denial of service system coming live while being under attack at the same time. It was yeah. really interesting. <laughs> yes. But that was a three-hour denial of service, and, but it would have been a, a three-week denial of service if Easily. these right. scrubbers in place and didn't have the solution and so forth. Now, it wasn't tested um when it went live but it got tested right off the bat we had we couldn't do the whole organization but you had to do a few towers uh out of some major data centers and one thing i noticed too is even other organizations because that's my background i'm a network engineer firewall engineer that's i've done a lot of that instant response of having those kind of denial of service platforms they don't test them they don't say hey i'm Mm -hmm. actually going to pull the core right now of this and i was always had that marine mentality right let's pull it at full steam and see what happens (laughs) i guess that's where we learned it yeah (laughs) that's we learned it and the same thing with cluster servers when i used to build these big exchange five five cluster servers three four nodes and i wasn't satisfied i wanted let's pull the cable let's pull the power let's see it fall over what happens
3: if i knock this one over yeah
1: But they don't do that in full DRs. I've seen where some of these bigger companies are not going to take the risk and run in a DR mode as a test and then have massive problems and things. And they just look like uh, incompetent when they did that. Mm -hmm. So what happens is they end up, I'm not going to do a full system test. I'm going to do a partial here. I do a little something like that. And then when you really need the full system, you have no idea if this thing's going to work or not. Mm -hmm. And so I do see that as a mistake in denial of service, not taking the risk do it in the middle of the night and try to fail the systems over, but actually spend time doing that. And you'll find out if it works or not.
3: I used to, yeah, I, that's a great, and that's a great example of how Intel informs decision making. It wasn't so much that, Hey, here's a report on ransomware. It, or began DDoS. It was that conversation of, do we have DDoS protections in place? And if no, what do you want to do about that? That is decision support. And that is the piece that's always missing Outside of most threat intelligence, it's just that initial information, but there's no so what am I supposed to do with this? What am I asking here? What and the fact that you were able to have that conversation and she was savvy enough to go, Wait a minute, I don't know. That's huge. That little exchange, though, is why threat intelligence at this point has struggled to demonstrate values because they're not sparking those conversations mainly because. The Intel team should know before they even send it that there's no DDoS in place and should be, able by the way, you would think, think but once again, if you you operate in a little vacuum and you're just focused on the external news, you're never going to be able to make those assessments. As it goes to the testing thing, I just work with the red team. They didn't want the red team to do anything too crazy because they didn't want them to knock anything over and break stuff. I'm like, why wouldn't you want them to do it? Because the bad guys are going to do it and not care and be happy about it. The red team at least can, at least it's yours and you can contain it and fix it before it goes really south. So once again, there's a mindset there. I don't know if it's just a a Marine thing. Let's pull the cord and see what happens. I used to do inspections of classified facilities and we'd find random servers running and then nobody had any idea what they were doing. Let's plug it, turn it off. And people are like, no, what if it matters? I'm like, then somebody will call. And so, yeah, to sometimes you just got to unplug it, poke it, shove it, see what happens. I don't know what kind of corporate paradigm policy that is, but I like it. I'd rather be the one to break it than somebody on the outside doing it on purpose.
1: Yeah, but you can see somebody not wanting to know, what if that thing ran some critical thing? I don't want to be the one that blew it up. And then they go, why'd you pull it off? Ah, it was there and I didn't <laughs> know what it was. So I decided <laughs> just to yank it. <laughs> okay, that's a real You You might want to ask a little bit before doing that, but yeah. yeah.
3: How many levels of comedy? Like I asked five people, how deep do I have to go? (laughs) And that's also a problem. If you have assets that nobody knows about, that's also a risk.
1: Oh, it's the same thing with us when we do an MDR service for our customers, the next level contextualization, like this IP address or this host name fired off that they had CrowdStrike lateral movement or something like that. Yep. And that's great. But where's the CMDB system? I don't have access to it. How is that exposed? Or even, And it's not even that if you have access to CMDB, is it even updated and accurate? And keeping it updated seems to be nobody's job. You ever notice that in corporations? <laughs> nobody's CMDB updater. Yep. Nobody has that title because I don't know who's updating it. I don't think it gets updated. It gets some consulting team, throws it together, and I don't think there's a program to keep up with it. And oh, yeah. I see that most organizations. Now, if you started tying that to finance or something, I could see where everybody would start. I said, you remember in the Marine Corps when you had assets that were assigned to you, yeah. you had to sign off on those every year? Oh, yeah. My computer and I was just... A, I never had to do that in corporate America. I never had to say yeah. that was my laptop, this is this and that, and sign off on it and accept the ownership oh. of it and do all that stuff. But the Marine Corps, we did. Right?
3: I I, but I think it's effective because you tend to, to pay a little more attention to how you treat your stuff when you have to turn it into supply when you're transferring out. Yeah. I
1: no, mean, oh, yeah. You don't have your canteen. You don't have this, <laughs> And all of a sudden, you're going out to the, 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 <laughs> the army's uh, surplus <laughs> store and buying yeah. parts. And- that's the same thing with the toolkits when I was a tech so I worked on radio system my unit was responsible for airstrikes and I worked on the radio systems and we worked when it we moved behind infantry units and that was our job is to provide rear security and I made sure radios worked the operators actually controlled the birds told them where to go yeah and so forth so that was the the, the mission at that time, but it was uh, just a different one. We had these uh, toolkits for fixing the radio, so the screwdrivers and so forth. And we would have to pay if a screwdriver broke physically. It, we had to pay our own money for those tools being missing. We don't make anything anyway, so we make little money. Is it whether it was a corporal at the time, I had to pay for a lot of tools. But you're like, really? I'm doing this job. Do I have to pay for the... But it caused accountability. Everybody... Fought to keep yeah. their toolbox. I
3: don't know if you'd keep a lot of people in cybersecurity if I had to like if I had to pay for the firewall. But there's there's something there that we can do. <laughs> it's not
1: like a toolbox. We just get yeah, the toolbox right? and let me pull out my firewall right now. But in many regards, deep seas, we do firewall management, right? Right. And we got pulled into it, wasn't we? Said, hey, you know what? I think we're going to go after the firewall management uh, market. And what happened is that we're seeing customers switch from 10 years ago. I'm a firewall admin, right? Cisco certified checkpoint, all those certifications on on the firewall side. And it used to be cybersecurity people were in charge of the firewall. And that moved to the network team. The network teams now are in charge of the firewall. Cybersecurity people would just make opinions on change management on hey, yes, you can add that rule. You can do this. But the actual troubleshooting and hardening and all that stuff now was the network team. What's the network team's primary responsibility? Allow all any flow, right? That's it. I was a Cisco CCMP. That's exactly what we did. So what we're seeing is I'm seeing breaches and incidents. I have to jump in as an incident commander that are caused by the firewall. We had the Fortinet vulnerability where there's zero day on the Fortinet and what you needed to patch that, but it was being exploited and giving attackers access to that SSL VPN right there on that segment. And so it needed to be patched update. Nobody was doing it team yeah. was that was responsible for it that they had an it company managing it and their job was just changes they never thought about upgrades or any of that kind of stuff so firewall got popped ransomware massive impact and what was the root cause somebody's not managing the firewall yeah. like a security device
3: uh, you, you've you checked the box that says you were firewall you've checked the box that says you've patched it it has updates but is it configured properly uh, mm. That's often left out. And to me, that's a question that intelligence team should look into because if the CISO is trying to determine, are we good today? Will we be good tomorrow? Proper configuration is up there, but I think it gets overlooked. Oh, but, oh yeah. big
1: time. But yeah. wait ahead. the Department of Defense had messages that were stolen because an S3 bucket was misconfigured yeah. and, and open to the read-write to the world, right. right? And that's Department of Defense, right? Yep. You can imagine uh, a university or a community college or something like that. Their resources all over the place, including even banks in many ways. Some of these smaller credit unions and so forth have all the same regulations as the big banks' requirements. Yeah. They got to meet all of these two, but trying to do it at their scale is extremely hard. So, a lot of it doesn't get done. Uh, properly, And now with cloud, it used to be, okay, if you screwed up on a server and you misconfigured it, you'd still have to be in the network. You'd still have to get past the firewall. You still have to, yeah. uh, you got egress filtering. You still got to get past stuff to to really there. In cloud, no, it's just any, there's no firewall. It's, so it's a little, you have to put firewalls, obviously, in the cloud environment. It's got to yeah. be configured. But for the most part, it seems that you can't rely on just the firewall being there to block anything new that comes up that you don't know about.
3: Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's the scope of work that we've been just talking about just casually is massive. Right. And so there definitely needs to be people working on this, but like, how do they even know where to start? Where to leadership, where does leadership know that they need to carve out 10% of their workforces, resources, time, people to do these things? Um, Where's that written? How do they track it? It's, it's huge. And does that have more value than whatever they're working on right now and dealing with the latest fire? So those are decisions they have to make. And so do we have tools in place? Do we have decision support systems in place for cybersecurity leadership and the business side of it? I don't see enough of it yet. So I hope to get there with RecFast I'm sure people will turn around to it, but that whole accountability thing, especially now that the SEC and the whole AK and we have to announce to the world that we had issues. be interesting to see who does first. But yeah, it's coming. Like Gartner did some sort of board of directors survey in 2022, and 88% of them identified cybersecurity as a business risk. That's huge. But how does that play out amongst the people in cybersecurity? And how do they show that they are dealing with business problems? I don't know. That's
1: yeah. Well, we have enough to worry about. And I can see where uh, we do a service called ASR, Attack Surface Reduction. And what it is, right. is vulnerability management, configuration management, and threat intelligence. And we fuse those together in the cyber fusion center. And the reason why we do it that way is that we want threat informed patch management, threat informed configuration management. Instead, I don't want a scanner. I can have a rapid seven that just scans a whole segment, throws me some massive report. I hand it to my provider, whatever, and just fix this, make these things go away. That's not even an effective manner on handling that. And uh, I think the, a better approach is to say, okay, these things are actually in the wild. Uh, we have ATP, such and such is in the wild. It's using this exploit kit. Where is that in my infrastructure? Is it easily obtainable? Is it buried in the OT side of it? So there's multiple levers to go through. And then you can opine back to those IT guys that are doing the patching and the systems owners that have to approve it and you go, You don't have to patch this right away. There is a mitigation. You can wait till the next cycle. You don't have to go out of cycle and do a C-cert and get everybody on the phone and everybody goes crazy and spends nights and weekends because something didn't get patched and and provide like that risk or threat intelligence perspective on it is extremely powerful. And then what happens is the IT teams you're, you're dealing with that are responsible for the patches and the upgrades love you. They go, <laughs> finally, someone that, that can take it from a perspective of a threat and, and what's a prioritization, because if everything is prioritized high, then nothing's high. It, it's absolutely that's all the same because <laughs> yeah. you can't say hi for everything.
3: Even better is you go to the VOLM team and then you come back. And then when you go to leadership saying, hey, here's what's going to happen based on this threat. We've already worked with the VOLM team and they've signed off on it. And everybody's really happy that everything's going the way you know it's planned. You don't have to do anything right now, boss. It's even better, right? So now you're showing that there's, you're crossing the aisle, if you will, and speaking to the other teams, you're not just like, it's critical. And then they're the ones that get called in overnight when they've already had a plan for it. So it's that going back to that, being willing to communicate, able to communicate, and then understanding each other's needs. That's a prime example of information security teams that need to get together and speak in that unified voice. How do you do that? So yeah. very cool.
1: And it's an interesting career we've chosen. Yeah. Uh, the The speed at which it moves my wife sees me on conference calls up into the middle of the night and she just goes i i, I can never do your job that is just too hectic i don't want to be on the phone as much as that it just it doesn't make sense people and then everyone's upset when you're in the middle of an ir everybody's nerves are fried everybody's doesn't know where this is at. it's usually chaos in the middle of these these yeah. Absolutely. and then what we notice is a real gap where we're my company tries to really come into is imagine you just got hit and you just hit ransomware and everything is a big impact and you're trying to recover your systems and you have an IR retainer with, with one of these big IR companies and they come in, they get you up and running, you're Mandians of the world and so forth to get you up and running and mitigate the ransomware, but you're the, and then they roll off and they leave. Here's your report. All right. And they don't even yeah. give reports nowadays, by the way, they, it's all verbal because when wow. they give an actual incident report, it can be, called into court and people could be sued. So even IR firms nowadays in in the IRs are verbally giving reports of that. They can't even. And so what will happen is they're bloody and they're on the side of the road and they go, okay, what do I do? You did a great job as an ambulance and stopping the bleeding and so forth. But I don't even know how to start mitigating this and driving this forward and uh, I'm lost. And I think that's where we can, we help our customers. We have incident response, Our capabilities, but we also have that professional services that say, "Okay, now this is your current state. This is a future state. Here's a roadmap. This is where you start should be." It's like we get them up on the path and pushing them look forward towards north and say, "This is where secure world lives, so to speak." Yeah, yeah. You know, right. Start heading north. You may not know exactly the degree coordinates. You remember this from the Marine Corps, right? You, yeah. I just know I needed to get north. I'll get the degrees and the specific azimuth radioed into me but I need I know it's 10 miles and I need to start moving in that direction right and that that you'll start to hone in I think some companies just to start moving in the right direction of a secure remediation plan they just don't know what to do
3: Yeah, they don't know what to do. And I think there's also that and it's natural that need to like get back to the network guys of things just need to be working. Allow all any, right? So
1: yeah, don't block anything. But
3: how do you like do disaster recovery responsibly where as you're recovering, you're also fixing and improving. And so you're better off than because you don't want to just return to the state that you were before the incident and well, then Ryan, how do you I do really, that without go ahead i
1: really want to thank you for coming on the show unfortunately you're yeah. out of time it went really fast i told yes, you it, did. it gets fun and you start talking and it unfortunately the show can only be an hour long this is the platform but really glad to have you today i think we covered a lot of different areas and in, in the threat intelligence world i'm really glad to see you again man i think we first met what golly like eight years ago nine years ago something like that fs
3: isaac maybe yeah, yeah
1: it was an fs isaac in arizona no coronado
3: or was it coronado
1: i was in coronado yeah for the fsi stick in coronado that must be where it was at
3: but yeah getting in trouble because the marines are in the back heckling everybody
1: it was interesting, is they, I deal with a lot of Air Force guys at Deep cities yeah. and they send me stuff like pictures of crayons, and all. I didn't even know that was coming from. To be honest, spent five years active duty Marine, never heard anything about eating crayons. Right? Really, nobody ever said no. I heard stuff like you, you later on, you're so dumb that you can you draw with crayons or something like that, but it was nothing, anything of eating them. Like, okay, it was one thing if you say I I use crayons because I'm a kid and I, I mess with yeah, them, yeah. but yeah, I no, never heard no. about eating them. And, no, uh,
3: but I will say if you have the money, then you always opt for Crayola because it's just a it's a nicer finish.
1: Yeah, they, and what I did for the Air Force Air Force guy, I gave him a gift, and it was a box of 64. And I said, look, the red one is really preferred. We love the red one, and the yellow one is really in morning time and it really gets you going. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's always funny, really intense. Brian, thank uh, you so yeah. much, man. It was great talking to you. Absolutely great uh, to catch up and appreciate it. And where can they more know more about your company? Where you have a- uh,
3: Recfast rec- Recfast.com. And then of course you can find me on LinkedIn and careful because I will talk about intelligence requirements all day and night long.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And everybody tune in for our next episode. In the meantime, stay secure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybersecurity America on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you've learned some valuable information to help you be a better executive leader and navigate today's complex world of cybersecurity. Until next week, stay secure.